Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a legal podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. So, Kimberly, we finally made it to the end of the term. Yeah, we made it. Um, that was a lot. We, I think we had, what was it, 18 opinions since uh, we last chatted with our listeners? Yeah, the last week has been a long year. <laughs> um, but to help us uh, sort out all 18 of these opinions in painstaking detail, or, or maybe not, um, we have two guests joining us today. Uh, the first is Amy Howe, who reports on the court for SCOTUS blog. Uh, Before turning to blogging full-time, she herself was a SCOTUS attorney. Uh, She served as counsel in more than two dozen cases and argued two cases at the court. How did they, how'd those go? I won them both and then I wisely retired. (laughs) That's some good planning. Yes. (laughs) Uh, We're also joined by William Jay, who's a partner at Goodwin Proctor, where he co-chairs the appellate litigation practice and heads up the D.C. litigation department. He's argued 17 cases at the high court and briefed many, many more. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, um... Maybe we should just start with what we got today. We got some pretty big ones today, as is usual on the last day of the term. Uh, we got uh, the census case in a totally clear and um, <laughs> easy to decipher opinion, right? Absolutely. <laughs> uh, what I learned, uh, you'd think I would have learned this after a co- several years covering the Supreme Court, is that when you get an opinion like you got today, what I should have done immediately was to turn to the back <laughs> because the first page of Justice Breyer's opinion spells out perfectly what's going on in the case. But instead, I muddled through <laughs> the Chief Justice's opinion for several minutes before I finally figured out right, what we, was going on. We had several people who only joined portions of his opinion. Um, other people joined different parts of his opinion. Then we had some concurring and dissenting opinions. So it was a lot to make out. But I think the bottom line, right, is that the Trump administration can't yet add a citizenship question to the 2020 census, but maybe it can in the future. Is that how you read it as well, Willie? It is that the Constitution does not prohibit having a uh, citizenship question, the court said, uh, but that the explanation that the Commerce Department gave was deficient. And so I read the decision to be remanding the case to the Commerce Department to either try again with a different explanation if there's time uh, or to give up. But as as of right now, it agreed with the portion of the district court's opinion that set aside the Commerce Secretary's decision to add the question. Right. And I mean, you mentioned the if there's time and that's you know, the Trump administration has been saying it has until the end of the month really to start printing up these um, census forms. It's, it's fascinating because you wonder whether or not the Trump administration has boxed, its, boxed itself into a corner. Now, as this, this case has been at the Supreme Court, there's been as, this ongoing battle over the evidence that was discovered in the files of this North Carolina redistricting specialist, Thomas Hofeller. And so the challengers in this case were trying to get this evidence before the Supreme Court or to get the Supreme Court to send the case back down to the district court in New York. 
and then there's also been proceedings going on in a district court and in the Fourth Circuit in Maryland to try to get this evidence considered in that case. And the Trump administration has been insisting that they absolutely positively have to finalize the census questionnaire by June 30th. And the challengers in this case, trying to get the Supreme Court to send the case back to New York had said, well, the Census Bureau's expert has testified that with additional resources, it's okay, they, as long as they finalize the questionnaire by October 31st. Hmm. So, you know. You mean we could be doing this? Maybe there is wiggle room, <laughs> yes. We could be doing this until October 31st, maybe. <laughs> and the Fourth Circuit, uh, when sending the case back to the district court in Maryland, one of the judges wrote a concurrence that said, the district court might want to consider strongly uh, granting a preliminary injunction right now uh, it basically to hold the government to the end of June deadline it had been uh, telling the courts uh, was the operative deadline and to enjoin it at least that far while it thought about the extra record evidence that had been turned up hmm. uh, from the Hofeller files. It was interesting. Uh, Dr. Hofeller's name was all over the court's opinions today, but not the census opinion. Is actually <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He's cited seven or eight times in the redistricting opinion, but not at all in the census case. Right. And I do want to talk about the partisan gerrymandering cases. Um, but, you know, one thing that stuck out to me in the chief justice's opinion is that he noted that, you know, agencies have to act in a reasoned manner and they have to give reasoned explanations. But he said the explanation that the Trump administration gave was more of a distraction. Um, and so I, I, I'm wondering what it is that the the administration is going to be able to say now uh, that might convince the court uh, that they can add this question if there if there's time to. Does anyone have any guesses? No, I mean it, it, that's it's a fascinating question, and and I've been thinking about that as well. I mean, they the, the Trump administration had originally said that the reason that they wanted to add the citizenship question was because the Department of Justice had asked for it because it wanted the data to better enforce federal voting rights laws. Um, and if that's not the explanation, and the Trump and the Supreme Court today s suggested that it, it wasn't, and they sort of marched through the the, the 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 evidence that was in the record, indicating that as far as the at least five justices were concerned, it wasn't. And what what is it? Right. Uh, I'm not really sure. I mean, one thing one thing the court said is that. The reason that the agency gives doesn't have to be the only reason. It can have kind of other unexpressed reasons that it doesn't mention in its decision. So just coming out with a new explanation uh, on top of the Voting Rights Act or in place of the Voting Rights Act enforcement explanation doesn't necessarily mean that they've just changed their mind and made something up anew. They could be taking something out, essentially out of their back pocket mm -hmm. that's been there all along. And that wouldn't, as a matter of administrative law, mean that it's invalid, but it would, it would be subject to the same kind of testing mm -hmm. that the courts gave the original rationale in this case. But you, you wonder, you know, if they've been saying all along, kind of banging on the table saying, we need to get this done right now, why would they be hiding any of these explanations? You know, I don't know. I think we'll have to see what happens um, going forward. It'll be interesting to watch as the summer goes on. And it seems like... You know, I think the Trump administration, I think that this ruling was probably a little bit of a surprise to them. And so they probably got the opinion and are trying to figure out what their next steps are. Mm. You know, the Department of Justice released a statement just a little while ago that didn't really give any 
indication of exactly what they were going to do mm -hmm. in this case next. It was uh, a more generic statement about, you know, we we're disappointed in the ruling, you know, we're going to, going forward, we're going to act lawfully, basically, mm -hmm. um, when we act in the ad federal administrative sphere, but, but didn't say anything about what they're going to do in the census case specifically. They are due to file something at 8 o'clock tonight in the Maryland District Court if they want to oppose uh, a preliminary injunction in that case if they but but I'm not really sure even what sort of what the status of that case mm. is now Willie do you have, uh, have a mean, sense in light of today's ruling uh, fair question right because the um, district court in New York set that set aside the addition of the question um, as a formal matter I think that the district court's ruling was stayed pending the Supreme Court's review, and the Supreme Court has not formally issued its judgment. So if I were the district court in Maryland, I would think that the Supreme Court's decision has not yet gone into effect, uh, and I would not think that um, my case was completely moot, although it might be likely to become moot in 30 days. So just to explain for our listeners that um, even though the court handed down in its opinion and hasn't um, issued its formal mandate um, or judgment just yet. Um, and as Willie said, that happens in 30 days. Um, so stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> stay tuned. Um, I bet this is not the last the justices have heard of this matter <laughs> yeah. over the summer. They'll just have to deal with it from Turkey or Ukraine or wherever <laughs> there's, there's, there's summer teaching. Can you see me playing the world's tiniest violin? Ever? <laughs> 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 uh, well, um, Unless anybody else has anything else to add about the census case, which we did not say was 9-0 or 5-4 or anything, because who can, who can tell what it is? It's divided. Uh, <laughs> it's mixed. <laughs> <laughs> Closely divided case. Um, well, let's chat about the partisan gerrymandering case, because as messy as the decision was in the census case, um, partisan gerrymandering is the exact opposite. Very clean. Um, you want to tell us what happened there, Willie? Sure. So th uh, this is, uh, it, in my mind, the most important case of the term. Uh, now, nothing actually happened to change the law, but that in and of itself is, is really important. Uh, and it's actually two cases, one from Maryland uh, and one from North Carolina. Uh, but the court said, we are officially out of the business of policing political gerrymandering questions. Now, there's still racial gerrymandering questions that can come to the court as they often do and as they did in the uh, mm -hmm. Virginia legislative case earlier this term. But the court basically said what four justices had said, but not a majority, in 2004, which is this is not a task the federal courts can take on. We might think that gerrymandering is anti-democratic. We might think that it vi might even violate the Constitution, but it is not something that the judiciary can take up or decide or remedy. And I would say this is the case so far, in granted only one term, where Justice Kavanaugh replacing Justice Kennedy made the most difference. Hmm, yeah, that's, inter that's interesting because Justice Kennedy had been, kind of been the one in the middle there. You mentioned that four justices in that earlier case had come out one way. Four other justices had, had said that this was something that um, courts could police. And then there was Justice Kennedy in the middle who said, well, maybe, maybe courts can, but we haven't figured out, you know, a, a really 
manageable way to do that. Um, so today, it seems like the court just threw in the towel on finding a manageable way to, to police partisan gerrymandering. Well, and last term, they had two partisan gerrymandering cases while Justice Kennedy was still there. So they had the opportunity to tackle this. And in the end, to use a very technical legal term, punted. <laughs> you know, they had one case out of Wisconsin, and then they had another case that what the same one of the same cases that they decided today out of Maryland, they sent the Wisconsin case back for that court to decide whether or not the challengers in that case had a legal right to sue at all. And then the Maryland case, they just said essentially, this case is still in a preliminary stage. You've, you, you asked us to step in, you asked the district court to step in too late. We're not gonna act on the case right now. And so in the Maryland case, the district judge entered a final decision striking down Maryland's sixth congressional district as the product of partisan gerrymandering. So the case came back to the Supreme Court along with the North Carolina case. But in the interim, as Willie said, uh, Justice Kavanaugh replaced Justice Kennedy. Oh, right. We had that. I, I kind of remember that. <laughs> it it was, seems like it was forever, forever ago. ago. <laughs> exactly. But um, it was interesting because in the Wisconsin case, Justice Kagan wrote a concurrence that said essentially, dear litigants, mm -hmm. here is how to write a gerrymandering claim in a way that Justice Kennedy will like. Please, <laughs> please use as you see fit. So it sure seemed to me as of, you know, a couple days before the end of the term that Justice Kagan thought Justice Kennedy was going to be around to hear the next round of gerrymandering cases, which were a... 100% lead pipe lock certainty to come back to the court. Mm -hmm. uh, but And they did, but without Justice Kennedy. But it wasn't, I, I have to say, after the oral argument, it was not a huge surprise. I mean, so much of the oral arguments in these cases were spent batting around the question of whether or not this is something that courts should be involved in. There was you know, very little discussion of if this is something that courts should get involved in, what kind of standard should they use to decide partisan gerrymandering claims? And you know, it, 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 it was not anywhere near the kind of surprise. It, it obviously could have gone either way. We, did, we didn't know much about what Brett Kavanaugh thought about partisan gerrymandering claims, but this was, this was, it was obviously nowhere near the kind of surprise that the census case was, and frankly wasn't that much of a surprise at all. Yeah, I agree with that. It was an earthquake, but it was not a surprise. It was not a surprise earthquake. <laughs> right. It was also not a surprise that it was five to four. And one other noteworthy thing is that in that 2004 case we were talking about, each of the four more liberal justices then on the court wrote his or her own dissent saying, here's the standard I would apply. And in this case, all four of the justices in dissent coalesced around a single decision, uh, dissent by Justice Kagan, which essentially said, district courts have been figuring this out without us for the last you know, X number of years, and we should just keep doing that. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there have been a number of rulings recently, um, kind of striking down maps in other states. Um, and so what does this do to those rulings? I mean, it seems like it wipes them out, right? Yes, I expect yes. that we will probably see orders <laughs> tomorrow uh, wiping those rulings out. What about uh, the situation in Pennsylvania, where it wasn't actually a federal court that struck down uh, the maps that were being challenged there as partisan gerrymanders, but um, was a state court under the state constitution? I, I noticed that you know the Chief Justice wrote in his opinion that not all is lost, that there's something that 
um, states can do and the political branches can do. And he was talking largely about independent redistricting commissions. And I noticed he didn't mention the state courts. Um, he did mention the Florida Supreme oh, okay. Court, which uh, Florida passed a ballot initiative which basically says no consideration of politics in redistricting in Florida. And that is enforceable by the courts in Florida. And so he mentioned that, but yeah, he did not mention the Pennsylvania mm -hmm. court, which uh, it was under the state constitution and so not reviewable by the U.S. Supreme Court, but raised some questions at the time, both based on the partisan split of the justices on that court and the amount of time that it gave the legislature to act before it decided to draw the maps itself and then the maps that it ultimately drew. Hmm. So he may just have decided that that case, which did come to the U.S. Supreme Court on an unsuccessful petition, was not one that he should be uh, smiling on in an opinion for the court. Hmm. Interesting. Just to sort of Willie's point about the significance of this case, the dissent was, was by Justice Elena Kagan, who took the relatively rare step of reading her dissent from the bench. And, you know, she's not, a, she's not sort of the doesn't have sort of the firebrand personality on the bench that sometimes, you know, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, maybe Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg have, might have. But by the end of her dissent, you know, she was, was speaking with, with quite a bit of passion. And if you look at the end of her dissent, it, it, it ends with a, a fairly unusual finish, which is, you know, with respect and sadness, I dissent, which you, you, you don't see very often in Supreme Court opinions. Yeah, it was a very passionate, um, passionate dissent. All right, and so I guess one of the other many decisions that we didn't get to the last time uh, on the last episode was the case Flowers against Mississippi. That was another pretty big case, although it's not clear what, how much of an impact that'll have for other defendants. And this is the case of Curtis Flowers, a black man in Mississippi who was tried six times by the same prosecutor for the same crime. Uh, the issue was racial discrimination in jury selection, and the prosecutor, in that case the local district attorney, Doug Evans, over the course of several trials, and he was the prosecutor in every one, basically had a pattern of striking black jurors, and then the question is, in the most recent case, the sixth case, uh, whether the prosecutor strikes viol violated the Constitution there under a case called Batson, and how much of the history of striking jurors in the case that gets taken into account. And I think it was pretty much expected after the oral argument that there was going to be a ruling in Flowers' favor. It was just going to be a question of sort of how big the justices were going to go and what the exact breakdown was going to be. And so that was a 7-2 a decision written by Justice Kavanaugh. And that itself was not surprising either because we knew going into the argument that he had even written about this topic as a law student. And during the oral argument, he seemed to take a pretty tough stance toward the state's position. So this seems to be an issue that he sort of staked out as one that he appears to have an interest in and appears to have an interest in a, in a way that favors the defense in these cases. And so he wrote the majority opinion. And then there was a dissent by Justice Thomas, uh, which also is not surprising given another rare courtroom moment where he actually had asked a question, multiple questions, uh, of an advocate at the argument, which he re very rarely does. And perhaps maybe the one question mark that was left after the argument that was 
answered in the opinion was that uh, Gorsuch also dissented, making it a 7-2 opinion. So I don't remember that necessarily being clear from the argument, but uh, aside from that, it was a pretty expected opinion, obviously a, a big deal for Flowers himself, who's sitting on death row, and now the question is whether he's going to be tried yet a seventh time by this same district attorney. And so given sort of how idiosyncratic the facts of these case are, uh, this case was, it's a question of what you know, what more defendants are going to benefit from a case, assuming they don't also have a similar case of being tried several times and have the same, not just have the same pattern in their case, but have the same pattern that's been documented so well, having had its own podcast dedicated to it. And so um, it was a big deal for Flowers, and we'll see sort of what that means going forward. I don't know if anyone else has any thoughts on the case, um, but that was another pretty big one this term. Yeah, there were a couple things that I thought were interesting. I mean, the first is that Justice Samuel Alito, you know, actually joined, uh, agreed that Flowers should, should his right. conviction should, his sentence should be, the conviction and sentence should be thrown out. He's, you know, not normally someone who votes with the criminal defendant and against the prosecution in cases like these. The other thing that I thought was interesting is, is that, yes, this was an area in which Justice Kavanaugh has expressed interest, but it just sort of shows that he's had quite a few pretty interesting assignments mm -hmm. for a first-year justice. You know, I had actually pegged him for the maritime law case <laughs> in the March sitting because the, the more junior justices are usually ones who get the, the, the lower-profile cases involving issues like bankruptcy and maritime law and ERISA cases, which are you know, certainly important to the people who get them, but are not the ones that are going to be you know, on the front page of the New York Times the way that, that this case was. <laughs> right. Yeah. In, so I guess I'll say a, a couple things about this case. One was that for many years, if you told me the Supreme Court is hearing the case of an African-American death row inmate, and the case comes on the inmate's petition from the state Supreme Court of a state in the South that has popular elections for its judiciary. I can tell you without knowing anything about the facts how that case was going to come out. <laughs> and the only question was whether that was still going to be true after Justice Kennedy left the court. We saw that it was. Uh, but one thing about the assignment going to Justice Kavanaugh is that there, there are two ways to write this. One is a ringing uh, application of Batson in a way that might well affect lots of cases. And one is a focus on the unique facts of this case uh, sufficiently narrowed that Justice Alito could join it and say, I do so on the understanding that if this affects this case and any other case in which someone is tried six times in the same little county in Mississippi, but no other cases. And that may well be a function of who got the assignment yeah, from the, I mean, from the Chief Justice. This definitely reads to me like a one ticket only kind of opinion. Right, and I suspect that the Chief Justice consciously chose to give this to Justice Kavanaugh when they were both in the majority. Yeah, we have a number of cases similar to what um, Amy said for the partisan gerrymandering cases um, that the court is going to maybe tell us about tomorrow that um, the the defendants there are asking um, to get another look at their sentences or their convictions based on the ruling in Flowers. Um, we'll see if you know they go back and what kind of a impact they have. Jordan actually found a, a colorful one. Oh, yeah, we were talking about this the other day. This one is a case where there was some sort of questioning during jury selection about how prospective jurors feel about the O.J. Simpson verdict or something like that, obviously a controversial topic. And so 
it's going to be a question, I think, of maybe how Flowers applies to, to something like that. So that could be one early indication of how broad a ruling it is. Um, this one, this gets a little deep into the weeds of the opinion, but maybe one aspect of it that could potentially help defendants going forward that maybe didn't even have to be in the opinion is the part about how a prosecutor's disparate questioning of prospective jurors of different races is something that, you know, courts are, or something that courts can take into account. And so maybe that might not be saying something totally new, but the fact that something like that is in there, didn't have to be, could be, you know, a sign that it's maybe something that defendants could benefit from in the future, although I think that's, it's an open question. Sounds like some wishful thinking over there. <laughs> yeah, well, not by me, hopefully, but uh, personally, but we'll see. Personally, right. Yeah. Uh, well, you all know Justin. Um, Justin, why do I always call you Justin? I don't know. I don't know. Just can't get any respect know. around here. <laughs> can't get no respect. <laughs> all right. Well, I think, um, you know, we I, we have to talk about the Maryland Peace Cross Peace case Cross. as yes, well. We so much that we got in these last last week. Um, what happened there, Amy? Your home state of Maryland. Yes, this was a, this was just outside Washington D.C. After World War One, the uh, American Legion put up a forty-foot cross to honor the forty-nine soldiers of Prince George's County, Maryland, who were killed in World War One. And the cross stood there in a traffic circle um, without any apparent issues until. 2014 or so, when the American Humanist Association and a group of local residents challenged it, argued that it violated the Establishment Clause, which bars government from endorsing religion. The federal district court turned them down, but the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit agreed with them that it does violate the Establishment Clause. So the American Legion and the Maryland Parks Commission, which now owns the land on which the cross stands because it's in the middle of the traffic circle, um, went to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court agreed to take the case last fall and heard argument at the end of February. And was it just last week? Seems like it was an yeah. eternity ago. Yeah. Um, last week, the Supreme Court reversed and agreed with the American Legion and the Parks Commission that it does not violate the Establishment Clause. And this was, you know, this was sort of a, this was, it was kind of epitomized, I think, a lot of the, putting aside today's rulings, a lot of the rulings for the, the, the term, sort of a, a, the artful dodge or the compromise. Um, it was, a, was not a, a five to four decision. The, the Justice Stephen Breyer and Justice Elena Kagan joined the, joined the, the majority in agreeing that the cross could stand. Um, they said when you have a cross that, um, you know, that after World War One, the cross didn't just symbolize Christianity, it came to be a symbol of World War One and fallen soldiers, and it, the cross was there to memorialize the fallen soldiers, and it's been there for, for a long time, and it, it should be allowed to stand. You know, the, 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 the opinion strongly suggested that you couldn't put up a new cross, you know, in mm -hmm. the same way now. But we're, we're not going to go taking down these old historical crosses. Yeah, right. I think the opinion said it would now if you started taking these older uh, memorials down, exactly. that it would actually be seen as hostile to religion. Yes, yes. Um, Justice Ginsburg dissented in an opinion that was joined by Justice Sotomayor um, and said, in essence, like, what are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? The cross is the cross, is, you know, is the symbol of Christianity, and this should not be allowed to stand. Yeah. 
Uh, any thoughts on the Peace Cross case from you? Yeah, I thought that the American Legion uh, and the uh, MNC, PPC, the, the, the land agency, uh, I would say that they uh, covered the spread uh, <laughs> they, they, uh, by getting seven votes for the, uh, for the judgment. Uh, it, was, it was thought once the court took the case that they were likely to reverse the Fourth Circuit. Uh, and it's interesting that the, uh, the Fourth Circuit uh, took this case en banc and it was splintered almost entirely along the lines of the party of the appointing president with one exception, uh, and then pretty lopsided reversal by the Supreme Court, hmm. uh, including Justice Breyer joining the opinion in full. The last time one of these old religiously inflected monument cases came before the court was the Ten Commandments cases in 2000. Five, and Justice Breyer wrote his own opinion. Nobody else joined. He didn't join the plurality's opinion that said essentially, there's really no test that can decide how to uh, determine how to decide these cases, but this old monument in Texas is okay. And it was interesting that, well, uh, he hasn't changed his view that, that now there's sort of a majority of the court, a lopsided majority of the court, taking the view that this old monument is okay. Uh, and the other thing I just note is uh, Justice Alito uh, who wrote the opinion, uh, emphasized the alternative remedy that had been posited, which is, why don't you just break the arms off of this cross and then it, <laughs> then it won't be a cross anymore. Uh, he had some fun with that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I noted that um, in that case, I think there were five concurrences so um, and and a dissent and, of course, a majority opinion. So very unlike, uh, you know, with when we have the liberals sticking together in the partisan gerrymandering case, in the Cross case, it was, I think, seven of the justices wrote a separate or wrote an opinion. Um, so maybe not as much agreement, maybe not as lopsided, but... Um, Although it's interesting to see that Justice Kagan, for example, even in though not joining two parts of the majority opinion, if you read the sort of the last paragraph of her concurrence, it goes out of its way to heap praise on Justice Alito and yes. the way that right. he'd written mm -hmm. the uh, opinion for the court uh, in a way that uh, was certainly not your typical uh, concurrence material. Mm -hmm. And this was definitely one where I felt like you could really, you know, sort of draw the line between the argument and the decision. You know, when, you, when I go back and, and look at the transcript and look at the, the stories about the oral argument, this pretty much seemed like exactly where they were going. And this was the same lineup, too, that we saw uh, in the Trinity Lutheran case. Or, I'm well, with uh, Justice Breyer and Justice Kagan uh, joining the more conservative um, justices, we had a 7-2 opinion in that um, establishment clause claim, too. So it may be that on this issue there is, but I've really gone back and forth on whether or not there's agreement or not. <laughs> I mean, Justice Kagan wrote a very powerful dissent in Town of Greece versus Galloway, which is the legislative prayer case. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I don't think that um, you would call her someone who is just naturally inclined to cross over and join the conservatives on every single establishment clause issue at all. Uh, but but you're, you're right that on uh, on this set of cases, uh, she and Justice Breyer seem uh, that their position, while consistent, uh, is closer to the center of the court uh, than Justice Ginsburg and Justice Sotomayor, who were in dissent by themselves in those cases. Well, great. Um, I mean, so many other cases to talk about, but I think um, you know maybe we could chat about some of the bigger, uh, bigger themes from this term. Unless there's a case that you guys are dying to talk about, you want to talk about that maritime case, Amy? Or? <laughs> <laughs> Did you prepare a whole bunch on it? Or? 
<laughs> I could tell you the name, and I could tell you what the court said oh, in one well, sentence. That would be more than it. I could tell you. <laughs> okay. Um, well, you know, actually, one case is that we or a set of cases that we didn't talk about that I think fits naturally in this um, idea of kind of themes of the, of the court this term and possibly going forward um, are four cases in which the justices were specifically asked in the question presented to overrule um, earlier cases. Um, and they did in some, they didn't in others. I'm wondering, I mean, is this something that we should be watching, keeping our eye out for? And um, how do you take the court's rulings? Because I would add to that that the in the North Carolina case, the litigants didn't present it as a question, but basically said you should overrule Davis versus Bandemer, which was the case in the mid-'80s, uh, which the court had said partisan gerrymandering cases are justiciable. We just haven't figured out yet how to justitiate them. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and I think you can say that the court silently overruled that today. So, uh, so that makes five. Uh, but is that was that in the court of public opinion that they did that? Is that? <laughs> <laughs> it was public, and I think, <laughs> and I think you can say it is in the opinion if implicitly. Uh, but, uh, uh, but, but yeah, the uh, the number of cases in which the court specifically granted cert on the question, shall we overrule by name uh, this uh, this old case uh, or even not so old case? Uh, that was unusual. Mm -hmm. uh, and then while they did not overrule, uh, for example, uh, the agency deference case, Auer versus Robbins, they certainly went quite a ways toward narrowing it. Uh, the one case that got resoundingly reaffirmed is the separate sovereigns doctrine, the idea that even after a federal court has either convicted or acquitted someone of a crime, a state can do the can convict or acquit the same defendant of the same acts constituting a different crime under state law, uh, and I wouldn't say that the court said we're keeping it because of stare decisis. They said we're keeping it because we think it's right that that those that the separate sovereigns doctrine was correctly decided. Hmm. So you said it was. Um kind of an unusual number to have four that were specifically granted. Do you think it's that the justices are more willing, um, kind of in this newly reconstituted court, to reconsider um, older cases? Or do you think it's that attorneys are getting bolder in their questions presented or something else? I'll, I'll give a quick answer, and I'm interested in what Amy thinks about this as well. Uh, but I do think that the court has shown that it often doesn't pay to be coy, uh, that there have been a number of cases in which justices who might have been the deciding votes have said, I'm not willing to overrule this old case in this litigation because nobody asked me to. Hmm. Uh, and so uh, sometimes straightforward is the best way. The best contrary evidence of that is the gerrymandering case that I mentioned a minute ago. What do yeah, you think? I mean, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, I think when you're, especially when you're talking about the, you know, the hour difference case, I mean, this has been kind of a bugaboo for some groups for quite some time. And, you know, they've kept bringing it to the court and they kept bringing it to the court. And finally, you know, this court bit hmm. on it. So, you know. You've got it. It, ta it takes two to tango when you're talking about bringing the question to the court. You can bring it to the court all you want, but you need four votes to grant. Right. It takes four to tango. Four to tango. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think I, I feel like I guess I feel like it kind of goes without saying that, you know, this is kind of the the ground battle on both sides for what they clearly see as a bigger war 
uh, you know, on issues like abortion and affirmative action. And so, well, some of them. Some, for some of them, I mean. Some of them. I mean, I think Justice Ginsburg has taken the like. She's like, she doesn't care about stare decisis. Not at yeah. all. Not at all. You know, uh, at, whereas Justice Kagan, I think, has decided to double down on stare decisis. Justice Kagan and Justice Breyer. I yeah. mean, his dissent in Franchise Tax Board versus Hyatt. You know, it, that, which is a big case, to be sure. There's a lot of money at stake, but you know, we wouldn't all be talking about Franchise Tax Board versus Hyatt if it weren't for that prior dissent about stare decisis. And how many more cases are we going to overrule this term? Well, it turns out. <laughs> right. Well, speak for yourself. I, I would be talking about Franchise Tax Board. I love that case. It's a SCOTUS three-peat. How can you not love That's it? That's true. There aren't many three-peats. <laughs> it's a Hall of Fame. And then the fact that it was Nevada who had no, okay, we won't get into the weeds on it. <laughs> I've already done that too. <laughs> That's another podcast. <laughs> a whole special like the Gilbert special Hyatt edition. podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can have him come in with Fane Lawsman. <laughs> and uh, what's her name? Carolyn Bond. Oh right, yeah. right. The more people who had been in front of the court a couple of times. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, the the marshals, uh, Anna Nicole's oh, yes, right. Nicole's late family. This is going to be a great podcast. <laughs> gonna have, we're going to have to get a bigger studio to have all these people on. Um, one other interesting uh, thing about the, the, the votes that came down this term is that we had uh, a large number of 5-4 votes or 5-3 to three votes. I think there were 21 by my count this term, and including things like the census that, you know, was – I'm counting as a five to four because um, I get to do that. Right. <laughs> if you say it is. I have the it numbers. Is. so. <laughs> sure. um, but interestingly, you know, the conservative block of the court only uh, prevailed in seven of those cases. And uh, the liberal block actually did much better with 10. Um, and that was because they were able to kind of bring over one of the more conservative justices in, a in kind of these one-off cases. Um, so I've been calling it the crossover term in my head. Um, so today they got uh, the chief justice in the census case, sort of. Um, any thoughts on whether or not this might continue uh, in, future, in future terms? I think, I mean, I think it's possible. I mean, I think, you know, with the census case, certainly, we, we see it, with, with, you know, obviously with partisan gerrymandering, it's split along the more traditional 5-4 conservative um, and liberal. But even before today, like, I had been fascinated by the Gorsuch-Kavanaugh split. You know, we, we sort of, we think of them as, you know, both two conservative justices who were both put on the court by the same president and presumably vetted by the exact same people. Um, but they're they're different. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you can't always predict exactly what what a justice is going to do once you put him up there. And, you know, Gorsuch is, seems to be going more along the lines of Justice Scalia, and Kavanaugh yep. seems to be going more along the lines of a, a, a Justice Roberts. So... Yeah, it was inter yeah. interesting. I noticed that um, the justices, Sorry. <laughs> the justices who were in the majority the most this term were um, the chief justice and Justice Kavanaugh, and the justice who was in the majority the least was actually, you know, the other Trump uh, uh, nominee, Justice Gorsuch. So I think kind of reinforces this thought that they're not they're not the same people. Yeah, I, mean, I think Justice Gorsuch was in dissent many of the times that the conservative justices were in dissent, uh, though not all. Uh, and where he crossed over, it was off, it, on a couple of issue areas, criminal law and procedure, and Indian law. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and that's 
those are important. Those are consistent with uh, his decision making, both as an appellate judge and, and last term as well. But uh, you know, they don't necessarily portend a willingness to join the more liberal justices on just any issue of any kind. Mm-hmm. For sure. uh, and then, and and likewise, he has been in dissent uh, in, in some of those cases, and in cases where Justice Breyer, who has broadly been more sympathetic to law enforcement and to the government, in criminal cases, especially on the role of the jury, uh, has crossed over in, in the other direction. So that, there was a couple of five to fours with uh, Gorsuch dissent, Breyer, and the majority. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought it was um, notable that every single um, Republican-appointed justice this term crossed over, um, including for the very first time since being on the court in 20, 2006, um, was Justice Alito who crossed over, sort of, to join the liberals um, in a case recently. So, In Gundy? In Gundy, mm-hmm. yes, but sort of. But did but. he do that for another reason? Um, because this was uh, right a case where, had the court otherwise been equally divided, there would not have been an opinion. And I think it was Justice Gorsuch's dissent in that case, uh, which is making sort of a, a broad call for attacking the administrative state, just to use sort of a broad way of putting it in a future case. Um, then if there hadn't been any opinions in that case, then that decision would not have been able to have been published. And so there's maybe a thought there that, although it would be a little weird, I guess, um, for Alito to vote differently than he wanted to, to do that in order for this, this dissent in order, uh, for this dissent to have been published. Because I think even Alito's concurrence in that case, you know, again, was sort of uh, very caveated, like in the Flowers case, like we were talking about before and saying, you know, in another circumstance, um, I might rule differently. Right. No, the Under our current doctrine, nothing violates the non-delegation doctrine. This is something, therefore it does not violate the non-delegation doctrine, but maybe the problem is with the doctrine, yeah. with it, not with this case. But this is not the case in which to change it. I think that's sort of the but I'm open to hearing cynical about paraphrase. It. Of, uh, yeah. <laughs> but I'm open to hearing arguments against it, as are the three people in dissent, and right. Kavanaugh wasn't voting in the case, so maybe there's actually a stronger majority for it that just wasn't in play in that case, yeah, if the, I'm remembering the breakdown correctly. Yeah, well, and there's, a, there's an explicit reference in the Gorsuch dissent to uh, in a in a future case with a full panel, right? Yeah. So yeah, that case was argued the first week of the term before Justice Kavanaugh had been sworn in. Mm-hmm. That was actually the case that took the longest to uh, to write. It took two hundred two hundred and sixty one days. Wow. Yeah. One, one thing about it is uh, to your point uh, is that they could have reargued it, you right? Know, uh, if they had been evenly divided, and if the new guy had had the deciding vote, I mean, as seems to have been the case in the takings case, uh, which is also argued that first week, uh, Nick, uh, they could have set it for re-argument. But it, so it, it seems to me more likely that Justice Alito basically said, this is, this is not the case in which to make uh, a clean break with precedent, whether we're with a full panel or not. As they're doing in Carpenter versus Murphy, the, which right. is right. kind of puzzling because they still only have eight justices. Right. right. Justice Gorsuch cannot unrecuse himself. <laughs> right. Justice, Justice Gorsuch participated in the case when it was on the Tenth Circuit, Circuit, right? So yes. even though they're going to re-argue it. Yeah. Um, yes. And this was a case that may turn half of Oklahoma into Indian country. I guess we'll have to wait a little longer to see if they do. I mean, it looked like Justice Ginsburg got the assignment if you, uh, uh, if you read the assignment Sudoku. Right. Uh, 
the same way I like that. I like the tea leaves, even. Assignments that go, yes, that's going to be in my vocabulary now. Uh, Well, I think one other thing that really um, stuck out uh, during this term, probably better for Jordan to chat about, but is um, saw a lot of spats about the death penalty this term. Yes. So we talked about Justice Gorsuch being sort of a a crossover vote on criminal cases. Um, He was very, if we're sort of looking at it through that rubric, he was very much not a crossover vote when it came to uh, capital punishment cases. We were talking about even uh, the Flowers case where he dissented, but uh, even leaving the, the Flowers case to the side, this was, I think, we can agree a fairly bitter term when it came to the death penalty, although it's always been a controversial issue, um, especially since the Glossop case, I think, in 2015. Um, it seems like it all kind of really started to blow up in earnest in February with the case, uh, the Ray case, which was from Alabama, where the court uh, greenlit the execution of a Muslim death row prisoner who wanted his imam with him in the death chamber, and that was a pretty heated case, and that was a a 5-4 split with the Republican-appointed justices allowing it to go forward, and then there was sort of really a a almost bipartisan outcry uh, as to what the court did in that case, and then there was the case, a similar case that sort of followed that with a Buddhist prisoner from Texas where the court wound up uh, staying his execution, and this was one where sort of uh, Kavanaugh was in sort of a middle ground there and reversing his vote in some ways, and then just to kind of tie it together with one more case, an actual decision in an argued case was uh, the Bucklew case, which Gorsuch wrote, and this was a 5-4 decision, which maybe sort of best encapsulates the death penalty this term. This was, again, a, a 5-4 split along the, the the lines of the party of the president who nominated the, the justices, and this was in the very contested area of lethal injection, and this was a ruling against the inmate Russell Bucklew, who he warns is going to have a gruesome execution because of this rare disease he has, and there's going to be bloody and exploding tumors and things like that, he says. And his execution actually just got set, I think, for the fall. And so there have been these, you know, late-night dissents and things like that where Justice Breyer in a late-night dissent in another case from a stay order, he wound up... uh, Maybe one interesting thing about that, which even goes beyond the death penalty, and curious what some other people think about that is how uh, Breyer was sort of complaining and exposing sort of the court's internal deliberations and talking about how it was messed up in his view that the justices wouldn't even wait to discuss the case further at their private conference the following morning. And this was in the the case of Christopher Price, another uh, Alabama death row prisoner. Well, and the ironic thing was that Breyer complained that the justices wouldn't wait and talk about it the next day but everything at the Supreme Court took so long <laughs> that Alabama wound up putting off Price's execution that day anyway. He was executed, I think, about a month later. And I can't remember if, whether it was that case or one of the cases involving the spiritual advisors. The really weird thing that the court <laughs> did was that then later on, <laughs> after the execution like weeks, happened, yeah. weeks later, they issued some dueling, like, concurring opinions, yeah. explaining what had happened weeks before in yeah. this case. There were, there were separate writings on both cases, I think on the same day, on a Monday morning. Yes, in orders, the orders I wanna, list. Yeah, I want to say it was, like, the 13th or something like that of May, when it was in the Buddhist case, Murphy, it was Alito and Kavanaugh, I think, who both 
wrote, yes. Alito writing, because again, this goes into the whole shadow docket issue, because I want to say at the time in March when the execution was stayed, it was only Gorsuch and Thomas who noted that they would have denied the stay. So then weeks later, Alito is writing saying, hey, everyone, by the way, um, I agree with Gorsuch and uh, Thomas that this execution should have been allowed to go forward. And then Kavanaugh writing his own, uh, his second opinion of the case, but that same day sort of in response, I think, to what Alito was saying to say, hey, um, you know, this is the reason that it was legitimate that we stayed this person's execution. But then in the, the Price case, the one that sparked the late night dissent, I think Price had a cert petition that was denied that day. And Thomas wrote concurring in that case, uh, where he basically took that opportunity to say how Justice Breyer's late night dissent um, was full of garbage in Thomas's opinion, <laughs> uh, and just sort of keep rolling this you know ongoing war. And again, all going back and citing the, the Ray case, the Muslim prisoner case, which set the whole thing off. So it's been sort of, you know, a rolling dispute. And then I think Price was finally executed at the end of May, and then Breyer wrote another dissent again, and then so Breyer had the last word on it, but Price was ultimately executed, I believe. Hmm. So it's just a sort of ongoing war, it seems. This is why when I co when we cover these executions, you make sure to say there were no public dissents. Right. Because right. clearly, you know, it's not all. Yeah. Now we'll have to start saying there has been no dissents yet, although the story may be updated in six weeks or something. Like I don't think it was six weeks. It was like three weeks. But it was a considerable lapse yeah. of time. <laughs> the right. wound had been festering. Yeah, it does seem like that's a particularly um, contentious area for the justices right now. And we have some more next term in the Capitol area. Right. So. Yeah, they granted certain in Arizona case, which which sort of somewhat of a discreet issue, but you know it's always going to be interesting to see what they do with any any death penalty case. Right. The, the court takes sort of generally three kinds of death penalty cases. One is an entire category of people should not be subject to the death penalty. Another is a lower court has done something lawless to. Uh, give someone relief from the death penalty. So, you know, uh, it's a state petition from the Ninth Circuit, let's say, or the Sixth Circuit. Or the Sixth Circuit, yeah. Right. The Sixth Circuit. <laughs> hey, the Sixth Circuit's having a good year this year, all right? It's true. <laughs> uh, and, and the third kind is sort of, here is a person who either suffered an individualized injustice, you know, had a terrible lawyer at trial, uh, the state suppressed evidence, uh, or is going to be put to death in a way that uh, implicates, uh, you know, Eighth Amendment considerations like the Bucklew case this term. Uh, and those cases get the most, the, la the last group, they get the most attention because they have the most colorful facts for right. journalists to write about, and they are the least predictive of how the court is going to approach. It's like the rest of its docket at all. They're just, they're just kind of their own thing. Hmm. It'll be interesting, though, to see what happens to those. I mean, Bucklew and Madison versus Alabama, which was another of the yeah. major death penalty cases this term, were both argued in the fall because they were granted last in sort of the spring of 2018 before Justice Kennedy retired. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, whether or not his departure has an effect on the docket, you know, at the merits docket in terms of whether they even take these cases. Right. Yeah. The, the let's peel off another category of people who can't be subject to the death penalty or for that matter to life without parole or solitary yes. confinement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it may see a precipitous decline in that, that, those number of cases. 
of course, or in the number of those cases, if the if the four liberal justices want to hear it, they can they can vote to grant cert. Right. But the issue is, will they want to, um, you know, get the outcome that, that right. yeah. I mean, seems like? I mean, I guess with this last category of cases where you know it's you're really dealing with these very idiosyncratic individual cases, they don't have a lot to lose. You know, they're not necessarily mm-hmm. making, they're not as worried about making bad law as they would be in, say, the Fourth Amendment context or something like that. And some of these are like temporary victories where then the the defendant winds up sort of, you know, getting executed, you know, later on at some point, and even they just, you know, deny cert or something like that. So it's sort of, you know, a feel-good opinion for the, you know, some of the justices in some ways maybe like the Madison case Madison we were talking cases. about the um, the prisoner from Alabama who has dementia and that was you could say a crossover of 5-3 with Roberts um, joining the Democratic appointed justices and this was before Kavanaugh they argued before Kavanaugh got onto the court um, and there's still an open question of how you know a case like his is going to wind up uh, playing oh, out absolutely. ultimately. I feel like that could be another episode of a, a, a long episode of a podcast it's sort of you know you win in the supreme court in, in many categories but then you know you lose you lose on. anyway i think one other topic is there was this sense that the supreme court was kind of going out of its way this term you know whether it was because of the contentious hearings for justice kavanaugh to avoid controversial controversial topics which led to a couple of compromise rulings um, and here I'm thinking for example of the court's decision on the Indiana abortion case the law that required the burial or cremation of fetal remains and then banned abortion based on race sex or disability and the Supreme Court in an unsigned opinion without briefing or oral argument uh, reversed the Seventh Circuit on the fetal remains provision of the law, uh, allowed Indiana to enforce that law, but then um, upheld the Seventh Circuit's ruling, striking down the ban on abortions based on race, sex, or disability. They, you know, they, they, they didn't say it was, you know, they didn't, they didn't necessarily weren't weighing in on the merits of the ruling, but allowed the ruling to stand. Um, and then in the Klein versus Oregon Labor Bureau and Industries case. This was what many of us thought would be the next iteration of the Masterpiece Cake Shop uh, case at the court. This was the case of an Oregon couple that declined to make a cake for a same-sex wedding. Last year, the Supreme Court had the case of Jack Phillips, the Colorado baker, who didn't want to make the cake, uh, and it sent the case back to, uh, said that the case against Jack Phillips when he was before the Colorado Administrative Agency had been tainted by bias against religion. And so the, the case of the Kleins came to the Supreme Court and everyone thought, well, they're, they're going to take this case because they've already agreed to take this question. And they kept putting it off and putting it off and finally just sent the case back to Oregon with instructions to reconsider the case in light of Masterpiece Cake Shop. I guess there was some Facebook posting by one of the commissioners in the case, and so there's maybe some suggestion that his ruling may have also been tainted by racial bias, but, you know, so. 
that I think that they're going to have to decide this question again because there's now the case of the Washington florist. Mm -hmm. They they already sent this case back <laughs> after Masterpiece Cake Shop, and and her lawyers have said they're coming back to the Supreme Court. Yeah, so I was kind of case could be back at the Supreme Court next term. Yeah, I was I was happy actually that they sent the cake case back again because I was like, we already did cake, let's do flowers, do flowers. this time. You know, I mean, the, the cake pictures really made me hungry and yeah, brief, so yeah, flowers so. are just pretty to look at. <laughs> well, they turned down photographers right. from New Mexico about That's years true. ago. So uh, uh, the other case that is sort of uh, hanging around uh, is DACA. DACA, right? right which the the court. Uh, perhaps has an informal only one Trump administration <laughs> uh, brouhaha per term. So there's no travel ban this term, but there was a census case. But they've had the petitions in the DACA cases sitting around effectively on a shelf, not being considered for some months now. They The, the petitions came off of came out of cold storage a couple of weeks ago, and I think we're discussed at, uh, at the justices conference this week. So we should find out on the final orders list whether there's going to be a cert grant or a denial or maybe still nothing. We are expecting an order list tomorrow, Friday, June 28th, and everything could change. So. <laughs> All right. Well, then I'm not going to make any predictions because then I will definitely <laughs> be wrong by then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we didn't do so well on the last podcast we were on together on making predictions where we were both pretty certain that the census case was going to come down 5-4. You're not it's supposed it. to remind everybody that. <laughs> <laughs> it was a 5-4. It was a 5-4. People and that's... only remember when you get it right, Kimberly. You oh, okay. Get with the program. Well, there. I didn't say that then. We were totally correct. It was a 5-4 decision, so take that. Exactly. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us. Uh, this has been us. fascinating to chat about. Fun the Supreme Court. Really appreciate having you guys on. And we will reconvene when the justices do in October. We'll have some fun uh, surprise episodes over the summer. Oh, we will. We will, yes. But as the Chief Justice said, we're all done. <laughs>